Hello everyone, and welcome to part two of my three-part series about Dream of the Red Chamber, also known as A Dream of Red Mansions by Cao Shui Qin. In the first part, we discussed some of the more metaphysical and conceptual elements of the novel, the distinctions between heaven and earth, between idealism and pragmatism, and truth and falsehood. In this second part, we are going to stick to steadier ground and remain on the earthly plane, as we take a broader look at the material conditions of the Jia household, focusing on the corruptive effects of wealth and status, the relationship between the well-off and the not-very-well-off, as well as the precarious position of women in 18th century Chinese society. To do so, we are going to be introduced to a few new characters. I don't want to overwhelm the listener with too many names or situations, so we will choose a small set to serve as representative examples. I should mention, however, that one of the more impressive aspects of Dream of the Red Chamber is the fact that, even though there are a fair number of characters, they each, for the most part, have a significant role in the story, as well as a sense of internal agency. This isn't a novel where characters exist only to further the plot. Even characters whose names you probably won't be able to remember on your first reading have something going on if you take the time to explore the book more thoroughly. During this second volume of the novel, which in my edition includes chapters 41 through 80, the reader's eyes are gradually opened to the truth behind the mansion's glamorous appearance. There is a greater emphasis here on what goes on behind the scenes, the squabbles, deceptions, and corruption that lies behind the apparent beauty. Our focus turns away from the younger set in their garden of luxury, and instead we are immersed in the parts of the mansion that connect to the outside world, and all the immorality and debasedness that comes with such a connection. We will begin with Wang Shifeng, the daughter-in-law of Jia She, the Lady Dowager's eldest son. Wang Shifeng is what we might call the mistress of the household, using mistress in the sense of a female master and a woman of authority. The older wives, Lady Wang and Lady Xing don't like to concern themselves too much with the running of the household, and leave many of these responsibilities to Shi Feng. This means that she has to deal with entertaining visitors, hearing petitions, sorting out gifts, allotting allowances, punishing misdemeanors, and much, much more. However, she does all this as a sort of manager. The true authority lies above, with the elder women, who act as a sort of sword of Damocles hanging over her head. All this responsibility, foisted upon someone only a little over twenty years old, seems like a disaster waiting to happen. But if you are going to foist it upon anyone, Shi Feng is one of your better options. Like Shui Bao Chai, she is extremely capable, clever enough to placate those who need to be placated, and ignore those who need to be ignored, all while, for the most part, maintaining a position of authority and respect. Shi Feng's reputation among the mansion's inhabitants 
varies wildly, mostly depending on what side of her one sees and whether her decisions work out in one's favor or not. The Lady Dowager, being a lover of good fun, appreciates her quick wit, and this is also what her younger relatives appreciate about her. However, many of these servants view her as overly strict and suspect her of embezzling the family's money. Her husband, Jia Lian, a rampant womanizer and total jerk, sees her as a jealous shrew. However, our most accurate account of Shi Feng would likely come from her head maid and primary companion, Ping Er. Ping Er came with Shi Feng when she moved into the Jia household, and the two of them often put their heads together when faced with difficult problems. Ping Er knows when to bother Shi Feng about something, and when not to. She can read her mistress's moods, and advise people about when and how to appeal to her. Ping Er would likely recognize that Shi Feng's strictness and her occasional cruelty are a way of coping with her position. Shi Feng is keenly aware of her reputation and that of the family, what people expect from her and what people suspect of her. Some petitioners believe the house to be flush with cash and view any frugality or reticence on her part to hand out money as miserliness or haughtiness. However, the reality is that the budget Shi Feng is provided with to keep the household running is not even enough for that purpose. She often has to pawn her own possessions in order to simply maintain the status quo. When special occasions roll around, such as a funeral or a wedding or a visit from the imperial consort, they eat up the budget for months, and she's the only person who fully understands this. Thus, she has no one to appeal to. Everything is on her shoulders, and she can't even tell people what it is that she's carrying. On top of this, she has to deal with the knowledge that people are constantly misjudging her and her actions due to their ignorance of the reality of the situation. We get the impression sometimes that Shi Feng, before all this fell upon her, was much like many of her younger cousins. Blissfully free of responsibility, she likely enjoyed writing and reciting poetry, and playing around, with her quick wit and her generosity probably making her a joy to have around. However, she has had to become cruel in order to adapt herself to the cruelty of the outside world, and has had to put on a hard face in order to protect herself from people wanting to take advantage. To some characters, it seems that Shi Feng puts on a persona of a joking, fun-loving woman when around her elders, but then is a harsh mistress when dealing with her subordinates. But we must ask, which side is truly the persona? Perhaps it is only with the Lady Dowager and her younger relatives that Shi Feng can wear her true face, and the harshness is the mask. We return to this perennial question of truth versus falsehood, as it's likely that neither of these is the true Shi Feng, and she has learned to become entirely adaptable to differing circumstances. We can't ignore the fact that Shi Feng is thereby capable of great cruelties, and that she has a prideful nature. When Jia Rui, an overly passionate young man, attempts to seduce her, she pretends to play along, meanwhile setting up a trap that 
ends up indirectly causing his death. When her husband, Jialian, secretly takes a second wife during a period of family mourning, an act which is explicitly forbidden, and then keeps this second wife outside of the household without telling anybody, Shi Fang, upon finding out, is pretty pissed, to say the least. But true to her ability to mask her emotion, <clears throat> she puts on a pleasant face, invites the new wife to stay in their home, and pretends to welcome the new situation. However, she uses her position as allocator of resources to ensure that the new wife only gets the worst food, that her allowance is always late, and that the maids mistreat her, all the while pretending to be on her side, such that the new wife feels that she can't complain. Eventually, she too ends up dead. Looking at these incidents, it's hard to argue that Shi Feng is secretly a good person. You don't accumulate such a body count by being a good person. What we can argue is that Shi Feng embodies one aspect of Bao Yu's fear regarding what happens when women grow up. His theory, or belief, is that unmarried women are the only people capable of purity and goodness, and that once they are exposed to the outside world, they either become victims of its cruelties, become cruel themselves, or both. Shi Feng, perhaps, is both. She's a victim of her husband's uncaring nature, and his propensity for running off after other women. This affects Shi Feng's standing and reputation far more than it does his, and as the only one of them with any actual authority or responsibility, her reputation is what matters. As a woman married into the Jia family, she has to work to prove herself, and that work never ends. She's always having to prove herself to those above and below her, even when that involves explicit contradictions. She has to walk a line so minuscule as to be practically invisible, and she has to do it in silence and with modesty. She can't just lash out with anger or violence like her husband can. She can't just get rid of him like he could she, and she can't run off with other men or simply go traveling somewhere for no good reason. Her only means of asserting herself are deception and manipulation, which necessarily leads her to a certain cruelty. Shi Feng is naturally clever. We see this when she's joking around with relatives during dinner or during poetry meetings. She has a quick wit and knows how to pull off a practical joke. Her wit and her cruelty are two sides of the same coin. When used for the benefit of others, to bring laughter, it's wit. When used for selfish purposes or to harm others, it's deception. There's no place for wit with a jealous and intransigent husband, with servants and petitioners alike knocking at your door, with the honor of yourself and your family on the line with every decision. If we call Shi Feng a victim, it's not to say that she's only a victim of her husband, but that she's a victim of the entire structure of society. Cruelty begets cruelty, and Shi Feng lashing out in the way she does, with the only real power that she has, is hardly surprising. It might be interesting here to 
compare Shi Fang to a, another character known for her cruelty. Concubine Chao is the concubine of Jia Zheng, Bao Yu's father. She has a daughter, Tan Chen, and a son, Jia Huan. Because she is a concubine and not a proper wife, both her and her children have a fairly low status in the household, a fact which she never forgets and which never ceases to cause her irritation. We could say that concubine Chao's major fault is that she doesn't or can't accept her position, that she's always striving for a higher status, even though her circumstances make such an ascension impossible. This continual banging of her head against a brick wall only worsens her position. Every single person in the mansion dislikes her, excepting only her son. Even her daughter, Tan Chun, who tends to live away from her in the garden, is ashamed of her and generally acts as if she doesn't exist. Concubine Chao is bitter and jealous. As she acts out, people respect her less, and this disrespect only makes her more bitter and more jealous. Considering her situation, we might almost want to sympathize with her at times, but the way she acts and speaks, the way she blows everything way out of proportion, and the fact that there's really nothing to her to redeem her in our eyes makes that quite difficult. We can only imagine generously, like with Shi Feng, that perhaps in different circumstances she might turned out differently. But unlike Shi Feng, we never even catch a glimpse of a better person underneath. Concubine Chao is so buried, so deep in her pit of resentment by the time we even meet her that no light shines through at all. In fact, trying to imagine Chao getting what she wanted, imagining her as a full wife of a noble man, only leads us to suspect that she might have ended up worse. Her ego is so out of control, her selfishness and vanity so heightened, that we can only imagine any power would immediately go to her head and make her a monster. Concubine Chao thinks of her son, Jia Huan, as much better than Bao Yu, and as more deserving of the privileges he is given as the favorite of the Lady Dowager. Bao Yu is blissfully unaware of these privileges and treats them as a matter of course. He is so sure of himself that he takes any criticism or disrespect with good humor. He was literally born with a jade pendant in his mouth. To him, there is no real correspondence between his actions and his status. Jia Huan experiences the reverse side of this. No matter what he does, he is lesser than Bao Yu because Bao Yu is a true son, and Jia Huan is only the son of a concubine. We see this type of relationship often when dealing with the feudal period of European history. A bastard son, even though he has the same father and was born into the same house and family, doesn't inherit his family's wealth or land, while a true son does. Thus, the bastard son has to go out into the world and make something for himself, often carrying with him a deep feeling of resentment. There's an apparent unfairness here that speaks to the inherent unfairness of being born on this planet. Some are born rich, some are born poor. 
Some are born in locations where survival is easy. Some are born in locations where it requires much toil. Depending on what sort of mobility exists at that time or place, both physical mobility and class mobility, there are different ideas about how one should deal with this discrepancy. In modern liberal democracies, there is an ideology of equality, that any person from any circumstance has an equal ability, and most importantly, an equal right and opportunity to reach any height of wealth and or status. This isn't literally the case, of course, but ideologies aren't about literally describing reality. They're about norms. So, in a society with this particular ideology, the emphasis will be to strive to improve your situation, either through education or hard work or a combination of both. In a society with low or zero class mobility, the predominant ideology will be that those at the top deserve to be there for some reason, either because they're intellectually or physically superior in some way, or because God just loves them more. In this situation, the norm is to accept one's station and fulfill one's duty as best as one can. Feudal China in the 18th century is an interesting case. There is a small amount of semi-meritocratous class mobility in the form of the imperial examinations. If one studies hard, learns the five books, and can scrounge together the money to challenge the examination, depending on one's score, one might land a job in the government. Like today, a job in the government is considered pretty stable, as long as you aren't too explicit about your embezzlement and don't piss off the wrong people. So, in the same way that a European bastard son in the Middle Ages might run off on a military conquest, a Chinese son of a concubine might hope for an official government position. Of course, a true son can just buy their way in or get appointed through family connections. Thus, Bao Yu doesn't do his schoolwork because he doesn't care, because he knows that he doesn't have to care. Jia Huan knows that if he wants success, he has to study hard, but his bitterness at the injustice of the whole thing means that he doesn't want to. Instead, he falls into delinquency. His social situation, the status he is born with, makes Jia Huan into a worse person. He is mean, he's vain, and no one really likes him, just like they don't like his mom. He has the taste of luxury, because he still does live in the Jia mansion, and is waited on by servants and given gifts and served delicious meals. But not only that, he sees how Bao Yu gets to live, with all that Jia Huan has, and a little bit more besides. With this tasting and glimpsing of true luxury, Jia Huan is corrupted. He could never accept poverty or even anything less than what he has, and thus he strives for that and for more. We're offered an interesting foil to this sort of attitude and to the Jia family in general in the character of Granny Liao, who visits the Jia mansion from the countryside at regular intervals throughout the novel. Granny Liao's son-in-law's grandfather was close to Jia Tseng's wife's father, a connection which is 
tenuous to the point of absurdity. She heads to the city to pay her respects and, hopefully, collect a few gifts for her struggling family. Thankfully, she has an inn with the family's steward, and somehow or other finds herself with a face-to-face meeting with Shi Feng, who takes a certain liking to her country charms. During this first visit, Granny Liao is overwhelmed by the wealth and prosperity of the Jia household, and barely knows how to act in front of Shi Feng. Even Shi Feng's maids are so well-dressed and made up that at first Liao confuses her headmaid Ping R with the mistress herself. However, while someone more adjusted to the city life might make a fool of themselves by overestimating or overstating their status, Liao's modesty and humility, as well as her obvious disorientation, lends her presence a certain charm. Shi Feng agrees to have a meal with Granny Liao, and sends her and her young nephew home with a selection of gifts, as well as some money to tide them by. While this first appearance at the mansion feels fairly innocuous, we are provided a hint to the future, as the chapter ends with the couplet, In affluence, charity is freely dispensed. One deeply grateful is better than kinsmen or friends. Which foreshadows Granny Leo's helping hand later on in Volume 3. After the generous reception of her first visit, Liao returns the next fall to bring the Jia family the first pickings from her farm's harvest. This time, she is introduced to the Lady Dowager, and the two immediately become fast friends. Liao's good humor and shade of ridiculousness appeals to the Lady Dowager's fun-loving nature, and the two bond over being above 70 years old. What's interesting about this relationship is that it's quite a bit more complex than it seems. The difference in status between Granny Liu and the Lady Dowager is about as extreme as it gets, and both parties are highly aware of this fact. Liu has to put on an act of extreme reverence, professing disbelief that the Lady Dowager would even deign to acknowledge her existence, and constantly referencing the various advantages that the Lady Dowager and her family has over her. When Shi Feng and the Lady Dowager express delight at the fresh produce that she's brought, Liu says it's just rough country fare, but at least it's fresh. We'd rather eat meat and fish ourselves, but we can't afford it. Now, we might hear that and think that she's complaining or fishing for gifts, in a society based on an ideology of equality, people don't often talk about their economic situation like this, because they find it uncomfortable to acknowledge these disparities. Someone in Liel's position might pretend to be less impressed than they really are, in order to not give away their status, because if all are considered to have equal opportunity for wealth and success, then poverty is a sign of personal failure. However, these characters are operating within an entirely different framework. It is certainly unfortunate that Leo's family does not have a lot, and the Jia family is willing to provide them gifts and support as a friendly gesture, but it's also just the way of things. The Jia family is favored by the emperor, and the emperor has the heavenly mandate, so what he decides is the law. 
they exist in such a different realm than Leo that it's not even realistic for her to be jealous. Poverty itself is not shameful. What is shameful is being unable or unwilling to recognize one's own status. Concubine Chow's great transgression is to consider herself worthy of treatment equal to that given the other ladies of the household, when the objective social conditions are such that this is simply not the case. It is for this, above all else, that she is punished. Later on, during dinner, a few of the maids, prompted by Shi Feng, play some practical jokes on Granny Liu, operating under the assumption that, being a country bumpkin, she will be ignorant of proper etiquette. But Liu is no fool. She knows that she's being tricked, but she plays along in order to entertain everyone. It's similar to how Bao Yu allows himself to be made fun of, as long as it makes his friends laugh, because he doesn't attach much importance to his reputation or his ego. Liu is a person of low status. She has no face to lose, and this allows her to face condescension with an inner resolve. She knows who and what she is. Granny Liu's presence in the novel is one of many ways that the Jia's family's position in the world is made clear to the reader. While we spend much of the story within the walls of their estate, we are not constrained to a myopic view of the world in which their material conditions are treated as the default. Between Granny Liu's visits and the several chapters devoted to the goings-on of maids and cooks and other servants, we are presented with a wider context that allows us to make sense of the main events of the novel. This story, like many others we've discussed on the show so far, is concerned with wealth and privilege, but it is in no sense offering a simple moralistic determination regarding this subject. The disparity between the Jia's family status and their actual wealth is one aspect of the true-false dichotomy we talked about earlier, offering a more complex view of what might at first seem a direct connection. Further, their relationships with and responsibilities toward the lower-status individuals who work in their household provide an additional layer of ambiguity to what many may perceive as a direct hierarchical system. On this note, I'd like to talk briefly about Yuan Yang, the most capable and essential of the Lady Dowager's retinue of maids. So diligent and loving is Yuan Yang in her service that the Lady Dowager swears that she can't do anything without her help. So while other maids are gifted to her many grandkids, Yuan Yang is always kept in her service. In a sudden fit of caprice, the womanizing eldest son of the Lady Dowager, Jia Xie, decides in his old age to take another concubine, and the woman he sets his eyes on is Yuan Yang. This is not a totally unreasonable request at its face. Promoting maids to concubines is a regular occurrence, and is in fact often seen as a great stroke of luck. As a concubine, Yuan Yang would have a much higher status, and this rise in status would even transfer to her family living outside of the mansion. When Lady Xing, Jia Xie's wife, first talks to Shi Feng about the idea, Shi Feng is dismissive. She points out the obvious arguments against it, that Jia Xie is too old and 
the concubinage would ruin Yuan Yang's potential future, and that the Lady Dowager would never give Yuan Yang up. However, when Lady Xing insists that she's going to do it anyway, Shi Feng, always ready to change her mask, goes along with her arguments and even encourages her. Lady Xing then heads over to tell Yuan Yang the good news, describing to her the honor and prestige that will come from such a promotion. But Yuan Yang, much to her surprise, doesn't join in her pleasure at this prospect. She simply hangs her head and says nothing, refusing to come along with Xing to announce the news to the Lady Dowager. Yuan Yang's refusal is somewhat curious. Like Bao Yu and the other exceptional characters in the novel, Yuan Yang doesn't quite see the world the same way as everybody else does. What to another maid would seem a wish come true, a chance for promotion, honor, and riches, to Yuan Yang seems worse than a death sentence. It's not exactly clear why, but Yuan Yang has developed a distinct distaste for marriage in all its forms. Jia She specifically is not the kind of man anyone would want to be attached to, but Yuan Yang is so averse to marriage that she declares she would not even marry a heavenly emperor. Yuan Yang doesn't care for riches or status. She is devoted only to the Lady Dowager. In caring for her and performing the duties of her household, Yuan Yang feels that she has found her rightful place. It might not be what others want for her, and it might not be what they see as her highest potential, for her beauty and charm provide her the possibility of a very good marriage match. But Yuan Yang has, maybe unconsciously, asked and answered the primary question, which is, what would any of those things actually do for her happiness? Despite being honorable, a marriage to Jia She would provide her with a worse day-to-day existence than doting on the old lady. She likes the Lady Dowager, and she likes her life the way it is. In the end, it is this ability not only to recognize her own desires, but to stand up for them against the machinations of others that makes Yuan Yang heroic. She ends up appealing directly to the Lady Dowager, who had been kept in the dark about the whole thing, and declares that she will kill herself if forced to marry. This threat of suicide is basically the only real autonomy she has over her own life. And frankly, it's quite powerful. There's very little one can do against an opponent who doesn't care whether they live or die, except capitulate. It's an extreme way of going about things for sure, but Yuan Yang is an extreme personality. Yuan Yang's devotion does not go unrewarded. Not only does the Lady Dowager take her side and keep her away from Jia She, but after the Lady Dowager's death, when Yuan Yang makes true on her promise to end her life alongside her mistress, Yuan Yang is visited by a spirit from heaven that, like the one that visited Bao Yu in his initial dream, takes on the form of Qin Kei Ching. This spirit tells Yuan Yang that she has been selected to take charge of the Board of Infatuation in the illusory land of Great Void. Yuan Yang counters that she has never known passion and is thus unfit for such a post. 
the spirit tells her, quote, Mortals mistake carnal appetite for love and justify their immorality by calling themselves romantics and passing it off lightly. In fact, love is latent in each one's nature. Once these feelings are expressed, then we have passion. Our love is as yet unexpressed, like flowers in a bud. If once expressed, it would cease to be true love. At its most basic level, Yuan Yang being given a position in the heavenly realm is a vindication of her actions and convictions on earth. She has repudiated the normative worldview of her time and place, and instead followed the timeless and eternal way of heaven. This led her to great sorrows at times, and eventually to suicide. But this only shows the inadequacy of the earthly realm. Her death is treated as heroic and proper. In this, there is an implicit criticism of the worldviews of all those who opposed her. Jia She, who wanted to turn such a lady into a miserable concubine, Lady Xing, who simply follows Jia She's whims, and even Yuan Yang's family, who tried to push her towards the marriage for their own benefit. All of them are trying to use Yuan Yang, and society has been structured such that Yuan Yang is supposed to feel honored for being used in such a way. This norm is clearly beneficial to those already in power and with privilege, while ignoring the wishes of those worse off. Heaven, on the other hand, doesn't work like that. Like all heavens, the heaven in this novel represents an ideal and a dream. In heaven, those who act righteously are rewarded, and those who debase themselves are denied such rewards. As the author, Cao Shui Qin decides who goes to heaven and who doesn't. Thereby, we can use this metric to determine, to a certain extent, how he feels about certain aspects of the society that he lives in. When we look at Bao Yu, we see that he is, in many ways, depicted as a person favored by heaven. Not only does he get to catch a glimpse of the illusory land in his dream, but he was also born with a precious jade in his mouth, saved multiple times from death by priests and monks, and is a favorite of the Lady Dowager, who can be seen to represent a sort of childlike purity. Thus, if we want to explore some of what Cao Shui Qin wishes to express with this novel, it only makes sense that we should explore Bao Yu's point of view. So, I'd like to return here at the end of this episode to Bao Yu's belief regarding married and unmarried women. It may, at first glance, appear somewhat chauvinistic, as if women are too weak or too pure to face the pressures of the outside world, that they can't handle responsibility and shouldn't be expected to. However, I think the matter is quite a bit more nuanced than that. In a male-dominated society, especially one in which there are such strict limits regarding the autonomy of women, growing up is often the worst thing that can happen to a girl. She can be married off with no choice in the matter to men who have every legal right to treat them awfully, with no possibility of recompense. We see this when Yingchen, Bao Yu's cousin, 
gets married purely as a means for her father to ingratiate himself with the family of a high official. On a visit home, she reveals that her husband is a violent and abusive man who treats her horribly, and all the older women can say to her is, maybe he'll calm down eventually. Their only true freedom, and this is only true in the case of those wealthy or high-born enough to live in a household like the Jia Mansion, is during their girlhood, when they are free to cultivate their artistic sides or simply hang around with their friends. This is the time of their life when Bao Yu considers them at the peak, not only of womanhood, but of humanity in general. As I mentioned in the first episode, the ability of Bao Yu's sisters and female cousins to maintain a balance between maturity and immaturity, between artistic idealism and pragmatic concern, is what elevates them above him. The reason they are able to do this is because they understand their future. They understand the limits that comes with that future, and therefore cultivate a more balanced character in order to deal with it. Obviously, this varies wildly from person to person, but even the most impulsive of the women in the garden seem like Stoics when compared to Baoyu. Baoyu and all the other men in the family don't have to compose themselves. They don't have to set limits on their ambitions or their desires. This freedom makes them entirely unbalanced. We see characters like Jia She and Jia Lian lose themselves through womanizing and drinking. And conversely, we see Jia Qing destroy himself through his obsession with Taoist elixirs and rituals. Even Bao Yu's father, Jia Zheng, pursues his career to the detriment of any sense of family life. It's not so much the innate characteristics of men and women that is at issue in the novel. It's their position in society. An imbalanced society leads to an imbalanced populace, one group too free to help from destroying themselves, and the other too constrained to help from being destroyed. Baoyu's concern isn't that women aren't strong enough to take care of themselves. It's that no one anywhere, at any time, could possibly be strong enough to live in such a world and not be adversely affected by it. Bao Yu's ideal of the unmarried woman is the ideal of heaven. It's the ideal of a realm where we aren't corrupted by the topsy-turvy material world. A realm of pleasure and art and free understanding. His sympathy comes from the tragic nature of specifically being a woman in 18th century China, but also more generally of being a person on earth. The tragedy being that there is no way to ensure against suffering. The girls in the garden are offered a temporary reprieve, a temporary Eden, with its abundance of fruits and natural beauty all available without toil. But all Edens must fall. You can't have heaven on earth. Which is real? Our world with its suffering, its inequity, its constant whirling and changing, good turning to bad and bad turning to good? Or is it heaven, where good is good and stays good, where souls are all equally free to be themselves? Which one would you rather be real, given the choice? 
when you've experienced hardships and realized that it's not just you, that everyone is experiencing hardships lesser or greater than your own, why should you cling to this idea that this is the only world that there is? In the first chapter of Dream of Red Mansions, a Taoist priest sings a song while walking down the street. Another man steps toward him and asks, What is that you just chanted? I had the impression that it was about the vanity of all things. The Taoist replies, You should know that all good things in this world must end, and to make an end is good, for there is nothing good which does not end. My song is called, All Good Things Must End. During the middle section of the novel, we see hints of the garden's impermanence. We see what has to go on behind the scenes to make such an Eden possible in the first place, the type of world that has to exist to prop it up. The world of the Jia family, that seemed so stable and assured, begins to lose the ground beneath its feet. Finally, we see characters begin to leave, pulled away by fate and by circumstance. In the next episode, we will explore the final section of Dream of the Red Chamber. We will find that that which seems too good to be true really is. Heartbreak and tragedy abound, but not without bittersweet moments of love and generosity. We will also explore the fact that Dream of the Red Chamber almost didn't end at all, that the provenance of these final forty chapters is somewhat complex, and shines a strange light on the novel as a whole. When I said at the beginning of part one that this book was primarily written by Cao Shui-Qin, what I meant is that despite centuries now of scholarship and discussion, our understanding of exactly who wrote this ending is unclear, as well as to what extent Cao Shui-Qin was even involved. To find out more about that, you'll have to listen on to the final episode. This has been episode two, or part two, of my three-part series about Dream of the Red Mansion, Dream of the Red Chamber, also known as Dream of Red Mansions. If you like the show, you can subscribe to the show as a podcast on Apple or Spotify or all sorts of other podcast applications and programs, or you can subscribe on YouTube where all the episodes are uploaded there on my channel, which is called Balkwell. You can also head to my website, balkwell.substack.com, balkwell.substack.com, where these episodes are hosted, and I also publish essays, nonfiction essays, every two weeks. If you like the show, you will likely like those. It's a very similar sort of thing. If you like the show, and you know someone who you think might like the show as well, I'd encourage you to let them know about it, tell your friends, tell people online. Uh, that's the only way that uh, I think people will find out about the show. And uh, we'd like people to listen to the show. Next month, we will be concluding this series on Dream of the Red Chamber with part three, in which we'll discuss the ending of the book. And uh, that'll be that. 
So look forward to that. As always, I'd encourage you to read the book yourself, um, especially if you don't want to know the ending before you start it. Uh, it's a very nice series of books. I mean, it's quite long. It's almost 2,000 pages, all told. Um, very worthwhile. You know, take your time with it. Have a bit of fun. You can really sort of immerse yourself in this world, you know, a world of these characters. You really grow to uh, love and appreciate or appreciate even the ones you don't love. So that's all for this month. Uh, see you again later. Goodbye. <laughs> 又要五十了，你好神经过啊！<笑>